This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 20th, 2018, the What Happens at Georgetown Prep edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. And I'm joined, of course, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. I'm going to call you David Plotz today. You're going to call me David Plotz for reasons about to be made clear to our listeners. John Dickerson is off to Britain to interview the prime minister, apparently. That's, that is his, that's his line. That's, <laughs> that's his story. We'll find out whether I know. What, right? if, yes, right. <laughs> what if there's no interview? We'll find, we will see. Just he didn't feel like hanging out with us on a Thursday morning. Uh, in his place, we have new to the GabFest, David French, who is senior fellow at the National Review Institute, a writer for the National Review, lawyer, army veteran, and he joins us from his home outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Hello, David. Welcome to the GabFest. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm honored. Emily, you, you're going to have a David confusion. You can just call me Plots. Yeah, I'm just going to call you Plots because <laughs> David French, I don't know you well enough to just call you by your last name. That seems impolite. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free, though. Feel free. All right. All right. On this week's GabFest, Dr. Blasey and Mr. Kavanaugh, the extraordinary spectacle and chaos surrounding the Supreme Court justice nomination will he and his accuser testify on Monday, will they not? What are the politics of this really interesting story? Then President Trump moves to declassify various materials related to the Russia investigation and to the FBI handling of it. Why are national security folks so outraged by this? Or are they? Are they justifiably outraged by it? Then police shootings. David French has a an interesting take on how to understand them and a change in how he's been thinking about them. And we will talk about that. And Emily always has good thoughts on this as well. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And before we get started, just a quick announcement. We will, as you know, be in Austin, Texas next week on Saturday, September 29th at the Capitol Factory. As part of the Texas Tribune Festival, there will be Slate Day, a day-long uh, extravaganza of Slate podcasts featuring us and Trumpcast, Amicus, El Gabfest, The Gist, and uh, we hope to see you there. We are going to have DeRay McKesson as our guest for that show, so please go to slate.com slash live. There may still be all-day passes available for that show. And we Wait, have- can I also say, come the day before, Friday, and you can see me interview Eric Holder, our former attorney general. Whoa. I'm excited about it. I've never really? met Eric Holder. It's going to be fun. That's exciting. Make a weekend of it. Go, yeah. Go see Emily... Uh, Go to the Texas Tribune Festival, which is fantastic. As we tape on Thursday morning, the Kavanaugh nomination is in a fog. The sexual assault allegation from Christine Blasey Ford has prompted a delay in the Judiciary Committee vote. As we're talking, the committee has proposed that Ford and Kavanaugh come in, as it asked both of them to come in on Monday to testify before the committee, Uh, just, just them individually, no other witnesses, no other investigation. Ford, meanwhile, has asked, apparently through her lawyer, that no hearing be held or no testimony be taken until after an FBI investigation is conducted into her allegations. 
as I understand it, the committee has given Ford a deadline of Friday at 10 a.m. to decide whether she's going to testify on Monday. There is just so much going on in in this story, and it's so complicated. Um, but Emily, let me start with a simple question, which is, if there is no investigation, should Dr. Blasey Ford testify on Monday? Well, so first of all, I think the request for an investigation is a completely reasonable one and makes sense if you're trying to actually ascertain the truth of these accusations. That's what investigators do. They look into surrounding circumstances and look for corroborating evidence. This accusation is about something that took place 36 years ago, and it's possible that it people aren't going to remember whether this party happened, when it was, et cetera. But at least one would want to allow investigators a chance to try to sort that out. Um, you know, especially because Kavanaugh has said that he wasn't at any uh, at this party. Um, and that seems like something that it's possible to at least find out more about. So I understand why Dr. Blasey is asking for the investigation. I think that if the Republicans are going to refuse to do it, which seems to clearly be their position and none of the, you know, Republican senators who asked for the hearing – meaning, you know, Flake and Corker and Collins and Murkowski, none of them are demanding an investigation. Um, And so I think the Republicans have um, decided that the politics don't force them to do one. And in that case, I think that if um, Dr. Blasey wants to try to have an effect on this confirmation, then she has to testify on Monday. You know, whether she decides to do that or not, that's her personal decision. So I'm not going to tell her to do it. But I think that's sort of how the politics have landed at the moment. David French, do you think this merits an FBI investigation before any Senate Judiciary Committee testimony, or do you think that the testimony should go ahead with the two of them? No, I don't think it merits an FBI investigation. Let's let's be clear about what we're talking about here. We're talking about investigating what would have been a violation of state criminal law more than 30 years ago, uh, something that the FBI doesn't investigate. Um, now, the thing, though, that when we're talking about investigation, people keep ask, acting as if the FBI is the only entity that can investigate. No, the, the Senate committee itself can investigate. The Senate committee staff, both, both majority staff and minority staff, can investigate. A person who – and I've, I've been a, a lawyer on the plaintiff side and I've been a lawyer on the defendant side in a variety of kinds of cases in my career, including some really tough and uh, – really tough sexual harassment type cases – and a plaintiff can investigate. A plaintiff's attorney can investigate. And so there are a lot. There are many different avenues of investigation here. And so I think uh, one thing I, I think is is pretty clear. And from what I'm hearing is it's not. I do not believe that Republican senators are sitting there going, "I can't wait for her to testify in front of us, and so that we can destroy her on national television." I think if I think these Republican senators, many of them view. Her testifying on national television is an extremely high risk endeavor for the nominee and for the GOP. Um, I think that there is a a view that if she comes and she testifies in public and she's very compelling, that this could absolutely sink the nomination. But at the same time, they also know you cannot possibly uh, vote on this nominee without offering this testimony. And so um, I, I think that they're going to continue to offer up right up until the deadline. And at the same time, you would hope that these committee staffs are busy doing their jobs investigating this all the while. 
So, David, maybe I'm a little confused about your position, because a couple weeks ago you were saying that, you know, if there were only four, four boars there, where the other two, let's hear from them. In fact, investigators should interview everyone else at the party. So are you saying that the FBI should not investigate, but somebody should, or that the hearing should just go ahead on Monday um, without an investigation? No, I'm saying an investigation should be conducted by the relevant committee. Um, And so the problem is, if you're going to say there should be an investigation and only the FBI should investigate when this is not in the FBI's standard operating procedure, I think that's a problem. But it is absolutely within the purview of these committees to do these kinds of investigations. And from what I understand, at least the majority staff has been doing these investigations, has talked to Kavanaugh under penalty of felony, has received correspondence from at least two of the other people who are allegedly at the party who say don't remember a party like this. Um, So there is something going on behind the scenes that is not highly visible to us. And the FBI typically doesn't investigate alleged violations of state laws. But in this context, the FBI does background checks of every Supreme Court nominee and did investigate Anita Hill's um, allegations about Clarence Thomas. In fact, according to the White House at the time, said they were unfounded. I mean, I'm a little confused. If Kavanaugh is innocent, I would think he would welcome an investigation to clear his name. Um, So that part of it puzzles me. But I also think from Blasey Ford's point of view, the Republican majority um, on the Senate Judiciary Committee is not a neutral source of investigation, right? I mean, some of those senators have already said that they believe Kavanaugh. And so I think what she is um, asking for here is to have uh, some neutral fact finders. But you also have the minority staff empowered to investigate as well. So, But those are both partisan entities, the majority and minority parts of the committee. And what Blasey Ford is asking for is a neutral investigator. And that seems to me to be different from just saying, oh, a particular entity, the FBI. I, I'm, I, Emily, I'm, I mean, this is a slightly different point, but I'm slight – I sort of feel like, you know, the, he is not being – this is the Senate has a – the Senate is the body carrying out this – hearing. The Senate is holding a hearing to decide whether they want to confirm him for the Supreme Court. This isn't a criminal investigation. This is not an attempt to open a criminal investigation against him. This is it's it's a process designed to decide on confirmation. And I feel like if the Senate's rules as set by the majority of senators are like, you know, here's how we're going to do it, even if it, they're tinged with partisan bias, like it's why not just go ahead with this? She can make her point as she testifies here's why this is an inadequate investigation and here's what should be looked into. But I don't know that that necessarily that she necessarily is entitled to this kind of investigation. Well, I don't know what the word entitled in that sentence means. Um, and I also feel like I'm repeating myself. But if you really want to try to find out the facts here, as David French wrote a week or two ago, you would investigate. And the idea of having a neutral investigative body that more people might trust their findings seems totally sensible to me. I mean, we already have a situation in which people are lining up on one side of believe him or believe her with a lot of partisan bias informing their choices about that matter. So if there's some hope here of finding out other facts that could help people see this in a more neutral way, that would seem important to me. One other related question I have about this is the decision to only call two witnesses when there's a third person, Mark Judge, who 
according to Blasey Ford, was in the room and then also is someone who supports Kavanaugh's version of events. I mean, it just seems to me the decision not to call Mark Judge has everything to do with Mark Judge's character and the fact that he wrote a whole memoir or maybe even two memoirs about his alcoholism and blackout drinking. And if they call Mark Judge, they're going to say to him, hey, there was a character in your book who you called Bart O'Kavanaugh, who you, you know, talked about puking and passing out from alcohol. Is that Brett Kavanaugh? They don't, the Republicans don't want that guy, you know, testifying in front of the American people. But again, if you were really trying to ascertain the truth here and try to figure out who's credible um, and whose stories hold up, of course you would call that third person and anyone else you could find who was supposed to be at that party. David, why do you think, David French, why do you think Mark Judge in particular shouldn't be called on Monday if you do think that? I don't think that. I think that uh, if you can identify people who were allegedly at that party, they should be called and they should they should testify. Um, so, you know, I, I look at this, I look at this in, in a way that is very similar to uh, the process of civil litigation. This um, because there's there's no prospect of prosecuting a crime here. Um, that's that's that ship has sailed a long time ago. Um, and in the process of civil civil litigation, a person comes forward with an accusation and then bears a burden of proof. And this is the burden of proof I articulated in an article when all this just first broke on Sunday was the lowest burden of proof possible in court. And that is preponderance of the evidence or more likely than not, because I don't want to have a Supreme Court justice sitting on the Supreme Court if it is more likely than not that they committed this this heinous of a sexual assault, even when they were a teenager. If it's more likely than not that they did this, I don't want them on the Supreme Court. In the same way with Roy Moore, I was utterly opposed to his election in Alabama because I thought it was more likely than not that he had abused underage young teenagers when he was a prosecutor in Alabama. The same reason I don't want, I did not want Trump in, well, for many reasons, I did not want Trump in the White House. One is I thought it's more likely than not he was a sexual abuser, the same for Bill Clinton. And so that that's the standard, which I think is a fair standard, is that we don't want someone in that office when it's more likely than not that they did this. Well, then how do you go about establishing that? And I, I tend to believe that the accuser, the person who comes forward with the accusation, bears the burden of proving at least that it's more likely than not that it occurred. And one thing that troubles me is as of right now, um, the only people who have said anything under – it's not precisely penalty of perjury. It's more precisely said sort of penalty of felony. The only people who have said anything under penalty of felony so far about this are Kavanaugh and two of the other people who are allegedly at the party. And the accuser to this moment has still not said anything under oath or under any penalty of felony in, in a court of law. That accusation would be tossed out unless the person was willing – to state their case uh, under penalty of perjury. And so the staff should investigate the heck out of this thing between now and a hearing, and then they should call relevant witnesses. And if the majority doesn't want to call relevant witnesses, uh, then I say shame on them. But that is what we we require of people all over this country in very, very difficult circumstances when a claim is made is to come in, put their hand in the air, swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and then make their case subject to cross-examination. That's the way this works. Emily, do you think if if we end up, as seems 
highly possible at the moment with simply the two of them testifying on Monday. And it may be, as David French says, there will be a background investigation so that at least the senators will come armed with with material to ask questions about, although it doesn't sound like there will be the other people under oath at the moment. And we have one person who makes a, a claim and she is credible, and we have another person who denies that claim and he is credible. What are we left with at that point? If both I mean, have done I'm it. not sure because we haven't heard the testimony. And I agree with David French that it's entirely possible and, I mean, in my view, likely that Blasey Ford is going to be a compelling and sympathetic teller of her story and that that could have a real impact. But we have to wait and see how it plays out. You know, for me, some of the arguments people have made about why Blasey Ford doesn't seem credible to them are not arguments that hold up to me. Um, and I so, for example, because, uh, you know, one of the arguments, I think, David French, you've made this argument that, you know, because she waited so long to come forward, that suggests that, um, I mean, certainly true makes it harder to prove. But to me, doesn't it all make it clear that she's not telling the truth? Caitlin Flanagan did an amazing job on The Daily this week for The New York Times and in The Atlantic talking about um, a sexual assault she experienced that she didn't tell anyone about. I had an experience of sexual assault in high school in the 80s. I didn't tell anyone um, for a long time. We just didn't do that. I felt way too much shame and responsibility um, to talk about it. It just seemed like something that was my fault. Um, But I know it happened to me. And I have the same response to hearing um, President Trump and others suggest that maybe she's mixed up about Kavanaugh's identity because I would never be mixed up um, about the person who did that to me. So I find those efforts to kind of undermine her story really hard to listen to. Do you guys think that that the uh, peripheral evidence about Kavanaugh's uh, teenage years, his his own joking about what happens at Georgetown Prep stays at Georgetown Prep, the hints in the Mark Judge memoir about Kavanaugh. Do you think that's going to come up? Is it relevant? Do senators need to consider that? Uh, you know, look, I, I think whether or not he drank to excess on occasion in high school is, you know, to to if let, let me put it this way. If he said, Look, there's no way I could have done this because I was stone cold sober all of the time. And, you know, remember with clarity where I was and where, you know, and what I did. And then there was evidence. No, in fact, you drank too much on occasion. I mean, at some point, it, it gets very, very difficult to say evidence that he drank too much on occasion equals evidence that he committed a serious act of sexual assault. I mean, you know, I. It's funny how all of this is when when you when you lack and one of the problems that we have here, I think, is when you lack a lot of evidence one way or the other, we begin to fill in the void with our own experience. And and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, some of the articles that, you know, that, you know, for example, Caitlin's article that you referenced earlier has been so, so powerful for so many people because it resonates so much with their own experience. And so in the absence of a whole lot of evidence to really sit there and weigh and carefully consider, you begin to import your experience in these things. And I think that's just a very human thing that we all do, but it's a thing that we do in the absence of evidence. And and when that occurs, it ramps up what's already an intense and emotional high stakes, um, high stakes 
kind of confirmation battle, political battle, and it becomes something else entirely. It becomes a big cultural moment. And we've seen this many, many times. And so, no, I don't say that there's a lack of corroborating evidence, contemporaneous corroborating evidence means that she's lying. I'm saying it more from a legal standpoint is that is a lack of additional evidence that is of consequence if you are going to be making this case in court. Um, so and that that's I, where I'm going with that. You know, making this into a cultural moment sounds like it's very mushy and being propelled by a few ind- individual anecdotal narratives. So I want to bring in this um, smart article by Sandra Newman in Quartz about um, the relative rarity of false rape accusations, which is something that I've also written about. It's a really low rate of people, of women or anyone, men too, whoever, who come into police stations and um, report a rape falsely. And we've known that for a while. But added to this picture, which I thought was really valuable, is that when people do make false accusations, they usually have a history of fraud or mental illness or something. Sometimes there's like a clear motivation of revenge, something that, you know, allows the facts to unravel pretty quickly and shows that there is some external motivation behind the false claim. And also, usually the false claims are like really florid. They're, you know, highly um, dramatic accounts of rape, like the claim that, you know, the UVA student made in the Rolling Stone piece that fell apart, which we've talked a lot about on this show. People rarely make claims of things that could be mistaken for consent. And that's the kind of claim Blasey Ford is making here. So I think that's important set of not just a few anecdotal narratives, but some data to add to this picture that to me you know, balance against um, this notion that Blasey Ford isn't telling the truth. There's one one problem with those studies. So the problem is our our legal system does not adjudicate for falsity. So um, what what you end up having as a general rule, whether a prosecutor, if a jury acquits, for example, um, a rape defendant, they don't adjudicate the claim to be false. They say that the burden of proof wasn't met. If a if a prosecutor declines to proceed with a case or if a judge grants a summary judgment motion in a sexual harassment case or a civil sexual assault type case, the, there's not an adjudication of falseness. What it is is there's a, a failure to meet or a believed failure to meet a burden of proof. And so all of these studies that say, well, X percent are false, it's, there's a methodological problem there because – that's not what our system adjudicates for. And so you can have a situation, and this happens all the time, where a person isn't a false accuser. In other words, they're not deliberately making a false claim, uh, but they're making a claim that is insufficient to meet the burden of proof, sometimes for reasons due to their own memory, sometimes for reasons due to conflicting evidence, sometimes for many reasons. And so I think it's uh, I I don't think outside of sort of the some of the fever swamps uh, on the right, I haven't seen too many people sitting here saying that Dr. Ford is sit- maliciously sitting back there and making all this up. That what I'm seeing is more people saying that based on the totality of the evidence, it appears that she might be mistaken about one or more elements 
So you were talking before about a situation of proving rape beyond a reasonable doubt. And it is absolutely true that rape is a famously hard charge to prove. But the notion that then one moved from there to the idea that there is some large number of false rape accusations out there, we just don't have any evidence for that. It's just like a canard. And when you say that you think that uh, Blasey Ford is mis- could be mistaken, that's a very delicate way of putting it. But what do you think she's mistaken about? She could be mistaken about identity of the attacker. She could be mistaken about the ex- exact circumstances of the things that happened in the room. She could be mistaken about uh, the amount of alcohol that various people, including herself, consumed. When you're talking about one of the things that that's really interesting about memory is that and this is a hard truth for people to understand because nobody doubts their own memory. Um, if you say to somebody, the thing that you remember is one of the most important things of your in your life, you could be remembering that incorrectly. People get really upset about that. And they say, that's just not possible. But everything that we know about memory says, not only is that, not only is that possible, that is frequently the case, frequently. Now, it's not, it doesn't mean that this 30-year-old memory that I've seared in my mind is false. It's just that I can't be sure that this 30-year-old memory that is seared in my mind is true. When I was a young lawyer, I used to have this view of the law so naive that was, here's one side that's telling the truth, and here's one side that's telling a lie. And uh, I always want to be on the side that's telling the truth. What I began to see is on these really, really important things in people's lives, I would see people believing with their whole heart that their story was right, and then sometimes reacting with extreme shock when confronted with contrary evidence. And so um, there was actually a really interesting Malcolm Gladwell podcast recently, Revisionist History, that sort of used the Brian Williams controversy to tee off on some of these aspects of our memories. And so that's why when people say we need corroboration, we need corroboration, you're not saying you liar, you liar. You're saying these things, these things get hazy and our minds play tricks on us. And the more that we can have that can give us assurance that this 30-year-old memory is accurate, the better off we'll be. Before we close, there's an article this morning in The Times by Richard Friedman, who's a psychiatrist, about memory. And he is pointing out in a way that I think uh, has a very different emphasis than your rendition, David French, that when people um, experience intense emotion, that that can actually make memories more powerful and lasting. And one of the really important distinctions that Friedman is making here is between recovered memory, where someone, you know, a memory completely goes away and then supposedly returns. There's a lot of reason to doubt situations like that. And a memory that's there all along that someone has tried to repress but can't get rid of, which is very much what happened to Blasey Ford. It's what happened to me. It's what happened to Caitlin Flanagan. You can dismiss that as a few anecdotes as you want. But I think there are a lot of other people out there who've experienced sexual assault, a lot of women who are in that category. And to me, all of those things, not to mention the sort of culture of silence of the 80s, weighs much more heavily than the kind of doubt that you're trying to sow here. Though I realize that, you know, for Republicans, it's really useful to try to sow that kind of doubt right now. All right. We will not. So that's really the last word? That's really the last word. <laughs> okay. It, it was, I enjoyed it. I felt like I was the um, the umpire, the referee at the uh, 
Serena Williams match. I won't say which of you was being Serena Williams. Uh, Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And if you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member. And of course, we have one for you today. The anniversary of 9-11 just passed, which means America has been engaged in a war against terrorists, the forces of foreign terror for 17 years in very across various fronts uh, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, elsewhere. And it is a war that continues. And we're going to talk about whether and how it should continue. Is the forever war really going to be with us forever? So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member and hear that bonus segment. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. President Trump this week ordered the declassification of a series of documents related to the Russia investigation in the name of transparency, the materials undergirding the Carter Page FISA application, the text messages of former Justice Department FBI officials who he's criticized, uh, including FBI Director James Comey, former Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, Lisa Page, the FBI lawyer, FBI agent Peter Strzok, former agent Peter Strzok, and also uh, materials related to former Justice... Uh, is he former Justice Department official Bruce Orr? I thought he was current. No, no he's current. He's, still he's current. He's yeah. still there. Yeah. Yeah, and that makes Trump very unhappy. Yes. Um, so it's clear that the president has the the right to order the declassification of anything he wants. Um, so David French, what, if anything, is problematic about him ordering the declassification of these materials? Maybe nothing is. Well, so a couple, uh, there's a couple of ways to think about this. One is I'm somebody who tends to believe, having seen an awful lot of classified information in my life that we have a massive overclassification problem. I hear you in this country. Um, we classify way, way too much information. I mean, you, you would almost laugh out loud. I, you know, when I was in Iraq, I had my Cipernet computer and and my Cipernet, you know, was a secret system. And I would look at all of the stuff, the information flowing through the Cipernet, and and I'm just like, only about ten percent of this really needs to be classified. So I default as a general matter towards more transparency, especially on a matter like this that where conspiracy theories are just ripping apart our body politic. Um, however, however, to say that I'm against overclassification does not mean that we need to have 
total transparency because the fact of the matter is some stuff still does need to be classified. Uh, and I frankly, I don't trust Donald Trump to make that distinction, um, nor do I necessarily have a great degree of confidence in the very authorities that are responsible for our overclassification problem to draw the right boundaries either. So I feel like we're at a bit of an impasse, but my general default is towards greater transparency rather than less. It would be slightly more persuasive if it wasn't so obviously designed to benefit him. If he picked things that weren't so obviously about the things that he has been making noise around and which are personally related to him and he's that he is obsessed with. The, the fact that he continues to use the Justice Department or use the justice system as a, his own personal a vindication of his own personal legal troubles is what to me is problematic. Emily, do you feel like he there's any defense for what Trump is trying to do here? I can't really think of it. I mean, it's true that overclassification is a huge problem. It's also true that deciding in this incredibly selective way to release the materials that, you know, Mark Meadows and other people who've been excoriating and castigating the Mueller investigation and the Justice Department for, what, months, practically years at this point, um, that is just like a very specific, <laughs> an overly specific, partisan, biased way of addressing the overclassification problem. I mean, I just think they don't have anything to do with each other. Um, and I've been struck by the response of a lot of former Justice Department officials that this kind of order, like there's no precedent for it in an ongoing investigation. I also wonder if it's really not going to help Trump in the end. I mean, every time these, you know, incredibly partisan Republicans have um, tried to make some case of bias um, it having to do with the FISA application for Carter Page, for example, which is part of what we're talking about here. They've just been proven wrong when documents have been released. I think it's useful to Trump to try to get the text between Pete Strzok and Lisa Page, you know, um, from the SBI and the Justice Department back in the news, because even though I think there's a lot of smoke there and there was a whole investigation and, yes, they were biased against Trump, but the findings by the inspector general at the Justice Department were that had no bearing on the investigation, despite those important central facts, um, just having these kind of bad sounding texts out there is like a way of churning up a lot of chaff that then, you know, confuses people and it's like a good sort of wall of obfuscation or just like smoke for Trump to hide behind. And that seems to me to be like... The only real utility here, that and just railing against the Justice Department and trying to undermine, you know, the people who are protecting the Mueller investigation. Right. I think you're, the chaff point is is right on, Emily, which is that even if there is less in these documents than Trump hopes there is in, in terms of vindicating him or suggesting a partisan bias in the investigation against him, it creates talking points. It creates things to mull over think it creates just distraction and confusion and it undermines and also it fulfills what I perceive to be one of the implicit goals of the Trump of President Trump, and I'm trying to say in the Trump administration, which is to undermine certain institutions of government because he perceived those institutions to be a threat to him personally. And that to me is what is so unsettling about all of this, the weakening of institutions which we as Americans should want to be pretty strong. David French, he said this week that we don't have an attorney general. The pre President Trump engaged <laughs> in a kind of remarkable attack on his own attorney general. Now, I have certainly have no deep fondness for Jeff Sessions as attorney general and is, find him to be engaged in, in matters of policy that I find appalling. But what did you make of that as a, as a um, conversation for him to start? Well, you know, start. every time – like 
yeah, it's <laughs> continuation been quite a... <laughs> of a battering that Jeff Sessions has been taking for months. You know, look, I, I disagree with uh, Sessions on a number of things. Civil asset forfeiture, some of his approaches on the war on drugs, some of his approaches on prison reform. I mean, I could go down a list. There are also things that he does that I like. But I think at least thus far um, in the Trump administration, I think history will judge Jeff Sessions as being a pretty courageous guy in the face of some pretty intense pressure from the president of the United States to distort the wheels of justice. And and I so, you know, each time the president says this and each time the president pitches one of these temper tantrums, my appreciation for Sessions standing firm and Rosenstein saying standing firm increases. And, you know, look, I, I do think on the he, to give people a little bit of background on the declassification issue, there's another reason why um, net net I'm for greater declassification of the Carter Page FISA applications. Uh, and and part of that is I think that there's a lot of people who are making a faith-based assertion about the Carter Page FISA applications that I do not believe will be warranted by the facts based on everything I know about the FISA process and people that I have talked to off the record who have been at least somewhat connected to this process. And that is the faith-based assertion you see on the right. There's sort of this unified conspiracy theory that exists. And the unified conspiracy theory goes something like this, that the entire Russia controversy, all of it, truly boils down to the use of the Steele dossier. They got this this shoddy dossier. They used a corrupt FBI and everything. And this is the fruit of the poisonous tree as all of this flows from the Carter Page FISA. And what is interesting to me is that assertion is often made most definitively by people who have not seen the documents. And so I I actually, um, I, I believe two things at once. I believe most of the redactions of the Carter Page FISA are not actually, um, you could remove them and not harm national security. And the other thing I believe is that I also do not believe that these FISA applications uh, when they're seen and when they're read in context, and that's going to be key. Is this just going to be a super targeted redaction that only redacts information helpful to the Trump uh, side of the argument or not? That in when read in context, I don't believe they will provide the support that people believe that they will regarding this sort of the unified conspiracy theory. And, you know, once again, you have to go back to these re, these FISA applications were renewed time and time again by different GOP appointed judges. And all of these people who say, well, these these FISA applications were materially misleading, materially misleading, forget that the judges have the ability to go back to the DOJ and ask for additional information and to sanction the DOJ if the DOJ, if they believe the DOJ was materially misleading. So, so, so every David, I mean, I have a question about that. If that's the case, then why would President Trump be so eager to get more of it out? The amb- you would think that then the ambiguity, the doubt about what's in them and the fact that people haven't seen them would would serve him. Why would he want it to why would he then want everything exposed where if you say what you say is true, it's going to reveal that in 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 totality this actually doesn't make his case at all. I think the answer lies in some comments that he made recently after the declassification order. And that he says that he made the declassification order after hearing from Sean Hannity, Judge Janine, and I can't and remember. And Lou Dobbs. Don't leave out Lou Dobbs. And Lou Dobbs. And Lou Dobbs. <laughs> so the idea, I think that the idea that Trump 
uh, sitting there at the Resolute desk, reviewed the, cabinet, the FISA application. As I call yes. it the cabinet. As I call it the cabinet. He's a strategic, informed decision. Exactly. That he reviewed <laughs> the FISA application. Cabinet. Yes. Yeah. The yeah, idea that he I, sat there and sort of like the Saturday. Do you remember the old Saturday Night Live sketch about Ronald Reagan that uh, where he looks bumbling when, say, the Boy Scouts right, come, right. but that whenever, yeah, that yeah. that Trump and when he's he's reality TV star by day and then by night he's behind the Resolute desk pouring through classified documents. I just I think he's operating under the same faith based determination. And one of the reasons why he his his impulse to declassify has been thwarted for so long is that other people in his orbit who are not operating under that faith based determination are saying, are you sure you want to do that, Mr. President? Are you sure you want to do that? And Sean Hannity finally convinced him that he's sure. I mean, the the one thing I will add to that is the, you know, concern about burning intelligence sources. I mean, this president has been careless about that in the past. Um, we have evidence for that. And so the tricky part for the Justice Department, you know, in responding, David, to what you're saying about how a lot of this doesn't need to be redacted, there isn't a national security interest there. I mean, you may be right about that. I have no idea. But I do think we have to take seriously the potential problem with exposing um, intelligence sources or methods in an ongoing investigation. And, um, and you know, maybe you'll be proven right and these documents will be released and we'll see that the Justice Department didn't have a national security interest in protecting the classified nature of these documents. But you can certainly see why Trump's lack of concern for that would give people pause internally. But I, Emily, just to just I, I, I... I'm someone who weirdly like I feel like we're, we all live in Ben Wittes's world now, which is that. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Which is that, you know, that now that there's a there's a president who is playing so fast and loose with intelligence and how and the intelligence community. We're more protective we're so of protective the intelligence of it. services. But I think Justice in Department. general, David's David French's initial point, which is that we are live in this world of massive overclassification remains valid. And it's but you just it, that I don't want to be put on the side of then saying, OK, let's let's declassify everything that any any intelligence agency wants to keep classified because they're not to be trusted. Right, you want, yeah. Yes. I mean, I think you could certainly promote a culture of greater declassification. And I would be all for that, having more stringent standards. But to have this incredibly selective, you know, self-interested, even if deluded order like that, this just isn't that. The, one one final point about this, actually, or question for you guys is. So the president ordered it, but it hasn't happened, right? Right. I know. I What's was also, the deal and, with that? Why? And the news I don't coverage is like, that. when will it happen? We'll have to see. And it doesn't sound like they that actually strange. that they actually engage in a review process. Which is, I don't. If the president orders it, why is there a review process? What's the deal there, David French? Shouldn't they just? Shouldn't we all be downloading copies of this on on our iPhones right now? <laughs> well, you know, you raise a really good question. Remember, Trump has issued some pretty emphatic declarations uh, in the past that if not come to pass. For example, you know, he, he issued a string of tweets about transgender soldiers in the military. And where where exactly, you know, that that policy was about as slow walked as you can possibly imagine. Um, my understanding is that the, essentially the positions being taken now is that his order triggered a process. It didn't end the process. And one of the things that you see um, frequently in this administration is there is a gap between Trump's words even seemingly Trump's emphatic orders and the actual actions that take place. And so I'm going to wait on the declassification assessment until I see the final end result here, the ultimate declassification assessment, uh, until I see the final result here. But to the sources and methods point, so I, I think at some point 
if he pushes this to the point that truly jeopardizes uh, national security, that truly jeopardizes the lives of, uh, say, a source, uh, or truly jeopardizes a method that is vital to American national security, particularly vital to our surveillance of Russia, our primary geopolitical rival, that's when it tips into serious people in DOJ saying, Mr. President, I I respectfully resign rather than carry out your order. We have not seen that kind of thing happen yet, but I think that that would be a tipping point. We haven't seen that safeguard click in quite yet. Uh, I know for a fact it's been considered on certain occasions, but uh, we haven't seen that safeguard get clicked in. And I think that safeguard should click in if he is truly endangering sources and methods. But one of the things that makes me a little skeptical about some of the classification battle here is you remember the, the, the infamous Nunez memo several months ago, which feels like in the in the um, like a hangover, point. remembering that yes, An old headache. Yes, yes. I mean, that's probably just a few months ago. It feels like it was twenty five years ago. It is but, just a few months ago, but still a hangover. Yes, um, there was a lot of anguish over the fact that the Nunez memo was going to be declassified, and then it was declassified, and you read it, and you thought, "What in there was worthy of classification? This is just a very poorly written memo." containing information that we basically already knew. Um, but the the anguish over the declassification, people telling us this was going to you know, cause national security problems, and then it comes out and it, and it lands, except in sort of, again, conspiracy theory Twitter, uh, with a thud. I, I am skeptical, even in this context of the Mueller investigation and all of this, of claims about national security and sources and methods in part because of all of the mistaken anguish over the Nunez memo. There should have been anguish over it because it was a cruddy memo, <laughs> but not because it was endangering American national security. Every time I hear Devin Nunez's name, I remember the <laughs> first time I heard it and I thought I'd never want to hear this guy's name again. I, I, he's somebody who's Devin Nunez to me embodies the kind of person who sh- just is an, is an embarrassment to the republic. He's terrible at his job. He's a disgrace, and you just want him to vanish, and yet he keeps and yet re- relevant. He keeps, re- but he keeps mushrooming back up, and it's, he t- he he is to me a symbol of all that is all that is screwed up in America. And I want him. I always want him to vanish. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Why I changed the way I write about police shootings. This is a piece that uh, David French wrote for National Review. It raced around liberal Twitter. Liberal Twitter always (laughs) loves it when... Somebody who's who's on the other side uh, takes on one of their positions, or at least seems vaguely sympathetic to part of their positions. And uh, it's you know, David, you have written really interestingly um, from a lot of different perspectives about police shootings, about uh, qualified immunity for government officials, notably for cops. Um, and so let's have a conversation about the state of of police shootings and the state of how we think about police shootings. And maybe we'll start with another piece that you wrote right before that about the worst police shooting that we've had yet, which is the Amber Geiger shooting of Botham Shenzhen, a neighbor of hers. Amber Geiger is a, a police officer in Texas who barged into the apartment of a neighbor 
uh, at night and shot him uh, essentially unprovoked. And it's she thought she was entering it, her apartment and he was an intruder. She, yes, she was uh, you know what she says, it was what his she apartment. says, what she he says. He was sitting on his it's, couch. It's a crazy story. The idea that it's considered a police shooting is ludicrous. She's a she was a c- civilian. She was acting her civilian neighborly way and went and shot somebody in a different apartment. But anyway, we can talk about that. And she's being charged with manslaughter, right? Has that happened yet? Uh, she's charged as of right now, but the grand jury has not yet weighed in. I would expect the grand jury to ultimately go with murder. I would expect, but it wouldn't shock me if it stayed manslaughter. But I think murder is the correct charge here and uh, for reasons I explained in my piece. All right. So, David, um, first of all, is that a police shooting? This is a woman who is not – she wasn't carrying out her duties. She wasn't carrying out her job duties at the time. And and then talk a little bit about why you, why you feel you're thinking or writing about this in different ways today. Yeah, I'm going to say yes and no to the police shooting. Um, yes, in the, in the sense that I honestly – if the story as being told – if the story that's being told right now is the story, and I do not believe that there – there is inconsistent evidence right now that contradicts the officer's story uh, that we can get into. But if – let's just presume for the moment that the officer's story is correct. I think that her identity as an officer was was important to her – to the uh, decision to pull the trigger. And this is what I mean. She walks in off-duty. She's armed and – and when a cop is in in their uniform, most cops I know still view themselves as being clothed with the authority of the state. She goes into a place that she believes is her own apartment, and we can talk about that all day, how that's not very credible. But let's just say that it is. There's a person in there, and w- this was this really in- important element of this, that she was using as a defense that he would not obey her commands. And when he did not obey her commands, she shot him. So in that standpoint, what she's trying to do quite obviously in this account is to clothe herself with the authority of a police officer responding to an uncertain, dangerous, ambiguous situation. That's what she's trying to do with her account. So that's why on the one hand I say, yeah, police shooting because that's what she's trying to do. But the reality is, as you you said, it's not a – legally speaking, it is actually not a police shooting because – the instant that she went to the wrong door and the instant that she brandished her weapon in another man's apartment, she was not clothed with the authority of the state at all. At that point, she is functionally an armed home invader. And the person who is in reality clothed, clothed with authority by the state, he was – he had the authority at that point. He could have defended himself with deadly force. She was a criminal at that point. So in that standpoint – no, it's not right to call it a police shooting. And that's one of the things that I think is so – that was so disturbing. It was so disturbing on count number one that she is attempting to fit this into the box of her of her authority as an officer. And then number two, it appeared that she received some pretty substantial treatment, special treatment that you or I or any of the three of us would not receive if we walked to the wrong door and shot dead a man in his own home. She walked away from the scene, apparently, without being arrested. It took several days to arrest her. She was charged with a crime, several magnitude, uh, order of magnitude less severe than what you and I would be charged with, and attempting to benefit both prior to the shooting and then after the shooting uh, from her status as a police officer. And I thought that was outrageous. So, David, you point out that police shoot and kill about a thousand people a year in this country. It looks like 3,700 since January of 2015. 
five to nine percent of those people are unarmed. Um, and that, that number has gone up and down a little bits here and there. Um, it doesn't appear that black men are being shot and killed disproportionately. Uh, they're being well, killed they disproportionate dispro- to, the, to their share of the population, but not perhaps their share of the population of potential criminals or right. pe- violent criminals. But they. But they- I just want to say I'm like I, I find that comparison really problematic no. as a starting place. No, it, yes, because it assumes that all black men are violent pr- criminals and therefore subject to you know more vulnerable because of their own behavior, which is just absolutely not true. Um, and it's also true that cities where there are more violence uh, does do are not the same cities where there are more police shootings. So, and all of what I just said comes from Wesley Lowry and Jamel Bowie. And also, the other point being that black men in general are wildly disproportionately subject to other forms of police mistreatment, or or police use of exceptional force. So, pepper spray, for example, even if even if they're not shot and killed. At, similar rates. So what what in those data or what in that suggested to you that you were thinking about police shootings in a, in a cockeyed way? Yeah. So a couple of things. Uh, one is if you go back to sort of the inception of the modern form of this debate, because, you know, we're, we're fooling ourselves if we say that this debate just got really rolling in 2014, 2015. But if you go back to the inception of the debate, and you were trying to look and figure out how big of a problem did we have with police shootings. We really had huge gaps in our data, just huge gaps. And so what we, what was happening is that we were extrapolating an awful lot from anecdotes. And so you would have, you know, um, the Michael Brown shooting, say in Ferguson or the Eric Garner, uh, shooting, and you would have these individual Incidents. I don't think Eric Garner wasn't shot, was he? He, he was choked. Shot. Oh, he choking, was... the choking, yes. Yeah. Um, and so you'd have these individual incidents, and then we didn't have a huge amount of data. So then what would happen is you would look at these incidents were almost like a proxy for the whole debate. So, you know, when the hands up don't shoot, um, when, you know, even the, the holder DOJ couldn't substantiate the hands up don't shoot, um, that, that debunking achieved for some partisan reasons and also for some reasons, good faith reasons, um, outsized import. Then news organizations, notably among them, the Washington Post said, wait a minute, all this data we have about police shootings is just wrong. Okay. Um, It's way incomplete. So we're going to try to be more complete. And then as they began to try to be more complete, and applying real methodological rigor, the number of police shootings skyrocketed. Like the number of actual shootings went way up. And that wasn't in the post didn't keep count of all the woundings. So, you know, there's woundings for every shooting. So that number expanded dramatically. Then another thing began to happen, and that is we began to see more video of the actual shootings. And as I looked at the video of the actual shootings, I was filtering that that through a prism of my own experience and my I have experience serving in Iraq during the surge with the Third Armored Cavalry Regiment. And I have experience not as much as an infantry soldier, of course, or an armor officer, of course, because I was a JAG officer. But I was a JAG officer who was outside the wire a lot on foot patrols, um, on in convoys, in tribal relations, in meetings, in meetings and situations that were 100 times more dangerous than any given day in any city in the United States. And I saw that the soldiers I served with 
exercised greater fire discipline in a far more dangerous circumstance than some of the police I was watching in American cities. And that was deeply disturbing to me. So you have a couple of things going on at the same time. You have number one, the number of shootings is far more than many people believed. And number two, the circumstances of shooting after shooting from my eyes looked more suspect, uh, looked suspect even under in a war zone, even in a war zone compared to um, being in an American city. And, and there was a shooting I looked at in Sacramento where an unarmed man was gunned down within second. I mean, within seconds after the police believed they spotted a gun when he actually had, I believe, a cell phone. And all of these people were saying, well, the police were fine because they thought the cell phone was a gun. And I said, no, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I know that, for example, soldiers take into consideration the background level of risk and are trained to take into consideration the background level of risk before they pull a trigger. So, for example, in Sacramento, I did the research and I found that there was, you know, maybe one a shooting of a police officer, say, about every 15 to 20 years. OK, that's not a circumstance that says I open fire within two seconds when I'm pursuing not a suspected armed robber, but a suspected vandal. And that combination of factors uh, led me to believe that, whoa, wait a minute, the way that I had extrapolated and talked about this issue in the past was it's not that I said all police shootings were right or that all there was no such thing as racist cops. It was much more on the standpoint of, to be sure, there are some racist cops, but and then debunking the larger problem, if that makes sense. And so now I've I've realized that, wait a minute, there is a larger problem. um, And here's why I believe there's a larger problem. One of the things I liked about your piece was your recognition that while the Justice Department didn't indict the officer who killed Michael Brown, they did find this history of, you know, deep history of discriminatory law enforcement in Ferguson, Missouri, where Brown was killed. You know, to me, that is very relevant context. And I assume from the way you wrote your piece that you're also thinking anew about those kinds of facts on the ground. In the past, I think you've been very critical of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you know, I see that movement of coming out of a sense of a recognition of the, those racially discriminatory facts in a lot of places in the country. The Black Lives Matter movement has in some ways evolved into being more channeled into the democratic process right now, um, is in a number of ways, um, you know, looking to influence politics. This is something that Wesley Lowry has been writing about lately. And I wonder if your views of Black Lives Matter have changed along with your thinking about, you know, what kind of context matters for evaluating police shootings. Well, it depends on what aspect. So, for example, the formal Black Lives Matter movement still, you know, seems to, it doesn't seem to, it actually does honor some of these uh, convicted cop killers who are in Cuba right now. Um, You know, it still maintains one of its goals is to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family. Those things, I just, I'm just never gonna, I'm never going to uh, agree with those things. And, and then, you know, some of, some of the rallies turned violent um, that, and I'm not going to agree that that's right or or pro- proper in you know in any of these contexts. So so here was my my problem I think in the past is I would look at those things the the violent incidents 
the more radical statements from the organization. And then I would say, I'm going to focus on those things that I disagree with, right? And yeah. I was and I was not going to focus on the other areas that I was, uh, over time, began to grow more and more alarmed by. So then about, you know, I don't know, a year and a half or so ago, it flipped over to where my alarm about the things that I was seeing on the streets and things like the substance of the second DOJ Ferguson report and the elements of the, you know, the, the study I mentioned in my piece about the much greater likelihood of non-lethal force, but still very substantial force being used against African-Americans, that became more important to me to deal with than the excesses of Black Lives Matter, the formal movement. So if, if we, I think we all believe that, that um, people, there are too many police shootings and that I think, David, your analysis that, that officers are over perceiving risk and acting more with impunity because they, they feel themselves at risk, even if they aren't at risk. What are the, the actual remedies or improvements that can be made? I mean, for, for one question I have is, should cops always carry guns? Do, do police in this country have to carry a gun all the time? Is that necessary? I think that's a really good question. It's so hard to imagine them giving up their weapons at this point. And because we're such a weaponized culture and so many other people have guns, um, that makes it feel sort of implausible. But, you know, I think when we go back to this terrible shooting um, that we were talking about earlier, we see the real dangers of cops carrying weapons all the time. Um, I mean, I imagine, David, French, you have a different perspective on this since I know you're much more of a Second Amendment guy than I am. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think cops are always going to carry guns. I mean, I um, live here in Tennessee. I have a concealed carry permit. I typically carry a gun. Uh, the I think the, the issue, though, is and, and here's where. Can here's I ask where, a question, David? Can I ask a question? Sorry, because we don't yes. have that many people with concealed carry permits. So let's um, who come on the show or not, I, 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 it's really interesting to me. <laughs> Just can I just can we just linger for a couple of seconds with some questions? What how sure. how often do you think you what makes you decide whether you're going to carry that day? Uh, it's a default that I do. Okay, unless I'm going to go to a place where you know, like <laughs> the sound engineer is like, wait a minute, is this guy armed? The I'm not for the record right now. The um, uh, as a general rule, don't reveal if I'm that be... you need to. That's the point of the concealed <laughs> carry permit, dude. Well, he you know, armed. I don't want him to feel. Listeners, like, I don't armed. want. Him I don't want him to feel uncomfortable. No, I, as a general, my default is I do. And I don't, when I know that I'm going to a place that is a gun-free uh, area. So like a, going to a school or concerts, things like that. So that's my default is that I do. Um, I used to not. I, I've always supported the right to carry. Um, but my family, um, you know, some listeners may know I was pretty prominently in, involved, at least prominent by, you know, obscure pundit standards in the uh, in the never Trump world uh, and we got uh, a, just an avalanche of, of vitriol and against our family and including some really really disturbing things that occurred and so uh, I'm very keenly aware of the need to protect my family so that's my default uh, is that I do carry and and how do you have clothes that are modified for it or where uh, you don't need I mean if you want to say where you carry it no it's it's very easy it's just a matter of of um what you know it's a matter of gun choice actually so it's very easy once you settle on the gun that you are most comfortable and accurate with you then adjust your clothing accordingly and it's super easy you would see me and you would never ever ever in a million years suspect that I'm carrying a weapon so Around here in the South, you know, like if you if I say that when I'm up at NR headquarters in New York, 
uh, and I'm talking to just random folks, it's sort of, they look at me like, uh, you, you might be a little dangerous and crazy, <laughs> but around here it's just, you know, you're, you're kind of surprised if somebody has never carried a weapon. You know, my, my wife's friends carry, um, my wife carries, uh, it's just the norm for an awful lot of people. So it's, it's not even a socially awkward thing at all. And one more question for me on this. So I, I carry a phone with me all the time and against my, my will, against my better judgment, I'm constantly like touching the phone, turning it on, checking something like, do you, when you are carrying your weapon, how often do you just like touch it or, you know, like remain engaged with it? And how often is it just sort of sitting there and you don't even think about it? A, a responsible gun owner is constantly cognizant of its position, but is not fiddling with it <laughs> at all. <laughs> that's good. So, yeah, that's Glad to hear you, that. Yeah, you're you're sitting there uh you're cognizant of it, but you're not manipulating it. And that's just basic safety. I mean, so and one of the interesting things about the concealed carry community, uh, if you look at the statistics, it's a remarkably law-abiding. Our best indication is that the concealed carry community is more law-abiding than the police. Um, which can actually can, circles give, back to given, the... Given what you've been saying, that's not very impressive, but go ahead. <laughs> well, but, you know, I, one of the reasons, and this is, I think, really important distinction between the private citizen with a gun and the police officer with a gun. And this, this is super important, I think, for people to understand. I know that if I fire my gun and it is an unreasonable use of that weapon, I'm going to prison. I know that if I fire my weapon and I negligently or recklessly harm another person, I may not only go to prison, but my family, I may be bankrupted as I pay damages. I know that. Now, if you're a police officer and you use your weapon in the line of duty, unless it's like some sort of like cartel style execution, as long as you can make a plausible, semi, semi, semi plausible argument that you felt afraid, then you're almost certainly going to be acquitted. And then you're almost certainly going to have what's called qualified immunity against damages. So think about the difference there. You have a concealed carried community that is absolutely subject to the law and a police community that is sadly, in very important respects, not subject to the law in the same way. And I think that has a real negative impact on the police use of force. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's go on to cocktail chatter. When you, you Emily Bazelon, are in your post-Yom Kippur mad consumption of food and alcohol and booze and you're, you're guzzling down drink after drink, what are you going to be chattering about? Two things, actually sort of three. Um, Caitlin Flanagan wrote this amazing essay in The Atlantic that we talked about earlier and did um, an interview on The Daily, which I really recommend. And I bring it up particularly because I felt like she was articulating something about her own feelings about forgiveness that was 
related to what I was trying to say earlier in the week about second chances for people and why it matters more to me that if Kavanaugh indeed committed the sexual assault, that he has never in any way reckoned with it or um, paid any debt for it. So I just recommend that. And in line with that, when I was in synagogue for Yom Kippur, the rabbi uh, read some text from Maimonides that has to do with the idea text? of... Text? Maimonides texted? <laughs> what? Some texts from Maimonides? Sorry, I was just a making a sentence from Maimonides. Text. I know text in this in the modern in the modern world has a different meaning. I was just like imagining Maimonides texting. <laughs> That's all. Sorry, it was really stupid. It was very dad. I was joking. meaning like Jewish. Yes, text. I know, anyway, I know, I know. I was just. Joking. This has to do with the content, the concept of um, teshuva in uh, in Judaism, which is what we are striving for um, on Yom Kippur. And it's some combination of like atonement and seeking forgiveness and also return. Anyway, um, Maimonides said, among the paths of repentance is for the penitent to change his name as if to say, I am someone else. I am no longer the person who did those acts. I don't know if I exactly think that you can no longer be the person who did the bad acts, but I think it's really important to allow room for the notion that people are not the worst thing that they did um, and that what matters more is what they do or don't do to fix the worst thing they did. And now I'm going to sneak in another sort of related chatter, which is um, to recommend a piece in The Washington Post this week by Elizabeth Brunig mm. about um, rape allegations that took place at the high school she went to in Arlington, Texas. There are allegations back from 2006 that ended in just total disaster for um, the teenage girl at the time who said she'd been raped. And Elizabeth just did enormously sensitive and also um, – comprehensive job of reporting out this story and trying to understand why these boys were never indicted, even though there was quite a bit of physical evidence implicating them, as well as um, Amber Wyatt, the teenager's story. And it's just such an important reminder at this moment of how many girls experience sexual assault and not only are not able to bring um, the boys to justice in the criminal justice system, but themselves are turned on. That is still a reality that is present for us and feels relevant to me this week. David, what is your chatter? Well, uh, let me let me echo the compliments to Elizabeth's story. It was an outstanding and moving piece of reporting and did show very, very vividly uh, the challenges, particularly and, and this is sad to say because we've seen it many, many times around this country. When you make claims, there's sort of this, this category of person that people rally around in a vicious way, and it's high school athletes. You make claims against high school athletes, and it's remarkable what happens. And that, that story can be has been replicated around this country many times, and that's evidence, I think, of a cultural sickness that we have. So I recommend it. It's an incredible piece of writing. But I'm going to completely shift gears um, I'm working through Ozark season two on ne on Netflix. I recommend this show. I guess the uh, the the uh, the you could you could title it a little differently. It's named Ozark because it's taking place in the Ozark Mountains in in southeastern Missouri. But um, it's like parachuting into a family that's been bad for a really long time, and it's it's just not only is it gripping on its own terms, and uh, Jason Bateman and Laura Linney are fantastic in it. But it, it's really this interesting exploration of what it's like uh, when crime has become a routine part of your life. 
and then the the reaction when the routine starts to be disrupted it's i can it's it's just a really good show i mean and part of it is i'm i'm colored by the fact that i've always been a jason bateman fan going all the way back but it's just fantastic it's so well done it's i would say it's a top 3 or 4 netflix show so so if you don't like dark television don't watch it but if you do i think you uh, if you do like sort of the the anti-hero genre you'll really appreciate that show my chatter also a, a quick double so the upshot at the new york times does the most interesting data analysis anywhere and they have a really fantastic uh, interactive feature up this week and it's about how we are connected to each other and it uses facebook as the tool to just understand it and so it looks at different count every county in the united states and says if you live in that county how likely are you to be connected to a person in the next county into any any other county in the united states and so you can see you know if you live in if you live in uh uh Dallas, Texas, you're very likely to be connected, of course, to people in nearby counties. But in general, you'll be connected to people in Texas, a little bit to people in Louisiana, and then, you know, so on. It spreads out. But what's what's interesting is not the ones where people are just naturally connected to people who live near them, which is true of everywhere, but when there are these weird other kinds of connections. And so so the upshot identified a few that are quite remarkable. Um, one is is how history weighs on us. And so if you look at people who live in Chicago and Milwaukee, who uh, probably in these case, in the case that we're talking about are African-American, you can see huge uh, connections in the Mississippi Delta because these are families that migrated up to Chicago and, and Milwaukee generation two, three ago, but maintain relationships down in the Delta. And so there's this, there's heat around Milwaukee, but then there'll be this other spot of, heat down in 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 the delta uh in there's another in california in certain parts of the central valley in california there are big links to oklahoma because these are still these are the okies who came from oklahoma in the great depression and the dust bowl who are now their descendants live in california but they've maintained relationships that are way back in in where they came from so it's it's just a really fun to play around with uh uh, and I recommend it highly. I also recommend, because I cannot get through a week without log rolling, the Atlas Obscura Kids book is out today. It's called Atlas Obscura's Explorer's Guide for the World's Most Adventurous Kid. It's beautiful. It goes to more than 100 of the world's most magical and weird places, the gates of hell in Turkmenistan or the Mexican cave, which has crystals as big as elephants or to Snake Island. If you have a kid who's five, five to 105, years old, uh, they will like the Atlas Obscure Kids book. Check it out. It's really, really good. If you saw our original book, uh, you'll probably love this kid's book. And of course, we've been collecting listener chatter. You, dear listeners, have been giving us great suggestions about what you are listening to, watching, reading, absorbed with. Um, and we encourage you to keep sending us great ideas at, at Slate gabfest tweet us at at slate gabfest with your with your cocktail chatter ideas and this week comes from deb azrael at deb azrael she says uh the new york public library grow up mini lending library program a project of the new york public library and it's fantastic because what does it do it allows people to check out ties and briefcases and handbags if they are going to a job interview. So if you're, a, if you're a person in good standing at the library, if you don't have outstanding fines and you've got to go to a job interview and you've got to make yourself look presentable, but maybe you don't have the clothes for it, you can go to the public library and check that out um, and check those out for a brief time. I love that idea. It's great. 
Good for you, New York Public Library, for coming up with that. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. For Emily Bazelon and for David French of the National Review Institute, thank you, David, for coming in. Come back anytime. I am David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with you next week. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.